Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audio book download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash necessary blackness. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from. You can access it from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I would like to give thanks to the ancestors, known and unknown, those who have paved the way for us to survive this moment of time and to have a reference point to use as a blueprint to deal with these hellish times we are living in. I would also like to give honor and reverence to the woman of the universe for your superior work, for bringing forth the spiritual information through the triple stage of darkness of your womb and giving birth to God. We would like to give reverence to the universe and praises to the indigenous. My name is Raheem Shabazz, and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognizes no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Yo, check out the award-winning docuseries Elementary Genocide. This docuseries provides a critical expose of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and the connection between slavery, capitalism, and the prison industrial complex. This docuseries features Dr. Umar Johnson, Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, Killer Mike, David Banner, Professor James Small, Kaba Kamene, and so many other people. Check out Elementary Genocide, the School to Prison Pipeline, Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, and the latest installment. Elementary Genocide 3, The Academic Holocaust. It's all available now at elementarygenocide.com. Tune in for the drop. I am Dr. Kira Taylor, and when I'm tired of listening to fake news, I will listen to some real news, and I will check into the Necessary Blackness podcast with my friend Raheem Shabazz. Raheem Shabazz is one of my guys from way back, and you're now listening to his show, Necessary Blackness Podcast. Stay tuned. This is a core of Cultivated Roots Media, and I choose to tune into Necessary Blackness because staying connected to my blackness is very necessary. Yo, that's what I'm talking about, man. You'll hear it here first. <laughs> now our feature presentation. Peace and power, black family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz of Necessary Blackness Podcast. And I want to give a shout out to our brothers and sisters that's locked down in South Carolina Department of Correctional Facility. Make sure you stay tuned to this broadcast because we got a special segment coming up where we are talking directly to you. Peace and Black Power family, this is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast, and today we have a special guest in the studio with us. Our guest today is known as Andre Norman. 
And Andre is ambassador of hope. Andre's experience and expertise is what empowers him to help people turn their situations around. Andre travels the world to serve as a mentor and a listening ear for many in need. He has made an impact working in the countries such as Honduras, Bahamas, Sweden, Guatemala, Libya, and Trinidad, with inclusion being the center of his solution-based effort. From illiteracy to gang activity, Andre's childhood prepared him for nothing less than a life of crime and violence. This behavior eventually led to Andre being sentenced to over 100 years in prison, a natural-born leader. He quickly rose to the top of the prison gang where he managed gang activity from within the confines of a maximum security prison. During his two-year stay in solitary confinement, Andre had an empathy, and he made the decision to turn his life around. He had a simple dream of attending Harvard University, which he did, and he became successful. Now, he's going to share his successful story with us today. Ladies and gentlemen of the Necessary Blackness podcast, let's all welcome the ambassador of hope, Andre Norman. How are you, my brother? I'm doing wonderful. I appreciate the invite. I'm glad to have you here. And today, what we're going to talk about is from the prison yard to Harvard Yard. Now, let's start, right, with those who may not know. Who is Andre Norman and what is it that he does in life? Andre Norman is a brother, like everybody else, born and raised to the inner city and grew up tough, grew up with the same challenges that most of the brothers are facing today, inadequate schools, inadequate parenting, inadequate food. And you just, you struggle. And I gave up as designed and I did the prison, the school to prison pipeline early. I was one of the first candidates back in the 80s. And when I got to prison, all my friends from the dummy class, all my friends from the principal's office, all my friends from juvie were there waiting for me. And they said to me, Andre, what took you so long? We were waiting for you. And I went to prison. I had a lot of time. And instead of using my time wisely, I continued on with the same attitudes and behaviors. And after six years of being incarcerated and never once thinking of going home, I finally came up with the conclusion that um, I was in the wrong place. I wanted to do something different. So I took the epiphany moment of wanting to do and be better. And my goal at the time was to go home and go to Harvard. Everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought I lost my mind. They told me all the reasons I couldn't go. I was black. I was poor. I was a gang member. I hurt people for a living. My family was poor. My father can't read. I was doing a whole bunch of time. I was a psychopath. Nobody gave me one solid support reason on how I could turn my life around and achieve my dream because it wasn't designed for that. Designed to tear each other down, whether it's in person or it's in the spirit. But I walked away from my friends and I walked away from my family and I said, I'm going to chase this dream by myself. And it took me eight years to teach myself to read, to teach myself to law, to teach myself to control my emotions and my actions. And I got out of prison and for the last 19 years, I've been traveling the world, helping people do the same, not get a job, not be nice to people, learn how to control your emotions. And that'll keep you alive and that'll make the world a better place. And I made it to Harvard along the way, just for those who are wondering. Now, me and you, 
um, sat down numerous times and we talked. And I have the privilege of traveling with you actually to Ohio where we visited three prisons. And during that time, I was like a sponge. I was taking in everything you said. And one of the most profound things that you mentioned to these inmates was that you're the sum total of your mentors. Could you explain to us who were some of your mentors? Um, early on in my life, one of my biggest mentors was named Dominic. He was that guy from my hood who this, his name rang bells. And as little young cats, man, we used to sit on the block and just hope to see Dominic go by on his moped or, excuse me, his hot, his little motorbike. Hope to see him go by in a hot box. That was like the highlight of the day or the week if you got to see Dominic go by in a stolen car. And we were just so gassed up and amped because he was that dude who represented our hood, thus represented us. And when he went to prison, I was probably like the seventh or eighth grade, and he got sent away for a life sentence. And me and the other fellas was to sit on the corner and wonder what Dominic was doing at the prison. So from the age of 12, 13, I'm already thinking about the penitentiary, even though I wasn't thinking about committing serious crimes. So for five years, I had in my mind the penitentiary, the penitentiary, the penitentiary. So I manifested it into my life from considering and thinking about it from the age of 12, thinking about my mentor, Dominic. And when I got to the penitentiary, I got to meet Dominic and hang out with him. And for me, it was the best thing ever. And we hung out for six years. <laughs> then I finally realized that um, as much as I love Dominic, I don't want to hang out here with him anymore. So I worked on getting myself out. Then after I got out, I went back and we helped him flip his natural life sentence, and now he's out. So now we hang out in the streets together. We hang out at the house together. We hang out in positive places together. No change, no keys, no cells. Now, you spoke about helping your friend Dominique reverse, get a reversal on his uh, natural life. Many people don't know that you was facing 100 years in jail. Actually, you were sentenced to 100 years in jail, and you was able to reduce that extensively. Can you take us down that path of how that was done and what was it like to actually obtain your own freedom? What happened initially, I was charged with an armed robbery. I went to trial, and during my trial, I took off and I ran. I actually, my, my dad, one of the few things he's ever did with me in my life was come to court. And we're at the courthouse and the trial's looking real bad. And they called a recess and I said, hey, dad, it looks really bad in there, man. I'm about to take off. I'm not going back in there. They're about to send me to prison. And I looked to my father for advice and for guidance. And it was at that moment he should have said, son, come on, let's go back in here. Let's face the music. I'm going to do this with you. and We're going to get through this together. He said, man, shit, it looked real bad. You might want to go to Canada. You got 20 minutes. I'll hold him up. Get in your car and go and give me $10 for parking. So I went on a the run. They found me guilty because once the jury's in panel, they keep going. I picked up five, six more cases before I got rearrested. But when I got to the prison, for the first six years of my sentence, I didn't file my appeals. I didn't study no law. I just ran around hustling and acting a fool. When I went to the law library and I started studying, and I realized I had appellate issues on my case. And I learned how to shepherdize. I learned how to research. I learned how to write briefs. I understood habeas corpus. And I just went through them law books every day. Stop going on the yard playing basketball. Stop worrying about who's playing basketball on TV. Care less about a movie. Care less about a visit. I stayed in the law library with the old heads. And they taught me what I needed to know to get free. And 
when I finally got my appeal in and I won my appeal, my lawyer said to me, well, the first thing, the lawyers don't care at one level if you don't care. Mm -hmm. My lawyer cared because she saw how much I cared. She saw the work that I was putting in. She didn't feel like she had to carry me. She felt like she had to keep up. Because I was coming at her, I'm not. I'm coming at their neck. I finally realized that I can get out of here, and she saw my my drive and commitment to my freedom, and she tried to match it. So the faster I ran, it was the faster she ran. Mm. And I see these cats; they walk slow, and their lawyers walk a little bit slower. I had my lawyer doing laps, <laughs> but when I flipped, when I got the answer back from the appellate court saying that my case was going to be reversed, my lawyer sat me down and she asked me. Why didn't you file this seven years ago? Why didn't you file this when you first came in? You could have been home 12 months after the door. Mm. You didn't have to stay here 12, 14 years. I did 14 years and 12 and a half of it was a donation because I didn't file my appeal. I was so enamored with hanging out with my mentors and the hood idols, the people I've always heard about. I kid you not, and it's embarrassing to say, I never once thought of going home in the first six years of my sentence. Mm. I thought of going home as soon as the handcuffs was on me. <laughs> you know, that's how serious it is, man, because, you know, prison is not a place to be. And um, as we Let's know- No, no, no. Prison is a place to be because my heroes are there. My idols were there. That's where I wanted to be. I wasn't sad when they dropped me off. I wasn't upset when they dropped me off. I was with the legends, dude. I'm saying I wanted to be there. It's like when dudes was on the block hustling. Absolutely. You was, man, what? You get to hustle with them G's, them real cats. You wasn't trying to go to school. You wasn't trying to go to your grandma's house. You trying to be out on that block. You couldn't wait to get back out there. And you were sad when they made you come in. So it's the same thing with prison. Criminality, hustling, the lifestyle is psychological. The physical part is really nothing. It's all the psych. Now, you spoke about being in prison and making bad choices. Does everyone have a choice regardless to their circumstances or their environment? When you go to, well, you have a choice before you jump out that window. Mm. Before you commit that crime, before you start smoking that weed, when you're 12 and 13 and you're 10 and your life is stressed out, it's really unfair to put this on them but if you're the auntie or the, or the uncle or the big brother and you see your young one stressing, please get them to counseling. Counseling is going to save them. Not the old head from the neighborhood talking about you don't want to do this. Not a scared straight program talking about we're going to take your shoes. They have suffered trauma. Whatever, by however, however, they suffered trauma. And you fix trauma through counseling and therapy. You don't fix it by scare tactics and yelling at people. So if you see young folks in trauma, help them then, because if you don't, it'll escalate to the point of criminal activity. And Absolutely. then once they get to that point, they're bungee jumping with no cord. And that is definitely what we're seeing today with a lot of our youth. And speaking of youth, as a youth, what inspired you that if you had continued to pursue to its fullest potential, it could have diverted you from the life of crime? When I was in the sixth grade, Miss Ellis, love you wherever you are, she was our music teacher. And she was the only black teacher at our school for the most part. And we all hated her because she was the only black teacher. That's just some psych stuff too. But Miss Ellis was a music teacher. And we had a band. It's like everybody had to be in the band. So she gave me a trumpet. And she said, Dre, this is for you. 
And I'm like, all right, cool. And I'm one of those kids who stayed on punishment. Back in the day, we could actually put your kids on punishment. Yeah. I was on punishment for all of middle school. I did something wrong or did something crazy every day, three days punishment, four days punishment. I stayed in the house on punishment. So I, what else could I do? We didn't have cable TV, wasn't no PlayStations. I had my trumpet. So I played my trumpet every day. Then I was the annoying brother. So my sisters would be on the phone, and we had them things that was actually attached to the wall. So my sister get on the phone, I play my trumpet. My brother trying to watch TV, I play my trumpet. Somebody got company, I'm playing my trumpet. I just wanted to be annoying. Yeah. That was my thing. <laughs> and, and being annoying, I got really good by accident. And when it came time to graduate middle school, you know how you go elementary district, you go to middle school district, then you yeah. go to the high All the kids funnel through together till they get to the prison. Yeah. But when I got to the end of middle school, Miss Ellis came and grabbed me. She said, you're not going to the district high school. I said, I'm going to district high school. That's where all my friends are going. That's where the older kids from the neighborhoods are. She said, no, I'm sending you to a magnet school for your music program. I said, what are you talking about? She said, you have a gift. You're a gifted musician. And she made me sign the papers and sent me to the magnet school to play my trumpet. And I got to the new school in high school. I was in the band. I was with all the nerdy kids and I was playing music and I was actually really good. But then I'm hanging out with the thug kids after after hours. So I go to band in the morning, hang out the thugs in the afternoon. And eventually my friends convinced me to get rid of the trumpet because it wasn't cool. They're like, yo, black people don't play the trumpet. You can't make no money. It's stupid. It's a big box for nothing. And they was like, the trumpet or us? My dad's gone. My favorite sister's off to college. My brothers, me and we don't really connect. Nobody to annoy. Nobody to. I mean, it was just... It was them or me. And I, I mean, you know, I didn't have anybody. Yeah. And I didn't know enough to stick to my own guns back then. So I put down my trumpet and instead and kept my friends, well, alleged friends. And when I gave up my trumpet, I tell people, growing up poor is horrible. Without a dad is horrible. And chaos and confusion is horrible. But people have done it. People have grown up in them circumstances and made it. But trying to grow up without a dream is impossible. And once I gave up my dream, of playing the trumpet, that gift, then I had nothing. Then mm. I could be any place at any time and it didn't matter because I had no place to be in my spirit. I had no place to be in my purpose. I just had no place to be. And they have a place for those folks. It's called prison. That's right. Speaking of gift, you have a unique gift that is now being used for the betterment of those that are languishing behind those prison walls. So you have prison administrators that want you to come in to speak to the inmates. But not only that, they want you to speak to the prison guards. Can you tell us what some of that experience is like teaching um, prison administration on how to properly run a prison and things like that? Before I came home, there was an old head slash OG, Mark Thomas. We called him MT. Serious cat. 1,000% serious, 100 days out the week. He had no days off. And when you talk to MT, you were talking black power. You were talking progressive. You were talking some, some strange book that he read about how the mind works and the world works. Mark was always serious. And he was deadly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right before I went home, he walked with me on the yard. He said, listen. He said, Dre, I see the track that you want. And it's a good track. He said, if you want to impact the people behind this wall, you're going to have to, at some point, work with law enforcement. You're going to have to, at some point, work with the correction officials. You're going to have to, at some point, 
work with the politicians because they control the keys. They control the facilities. You can stand outside with people who are marching and screaming and protesting. That's cool. But we've been here forever, and ain't none of those protests made it through these walls. What comes through these walls are the new laws, the new regulations, the new policies, all handed down and governed by the administration at all levels. So you're going to have to find a way to get past the protesters, get past the screamers, and get into the room with the people who have control. And OG told me, he said, you're going to have to sit with those folks and represent us well. So... Now, when I came home, I started doing the the on-the-ground work, touching people who are out, touching people who just came home, touching people who need programs, touching people who need letters or support. But then I realized there are a lot of people who can fit that role, who can touch people on the ground. So I moved up, and I kept moving up, and I started working at universities. I taught a class at Tufts Universities on the prison system. I'm teaching the young minds, the educated rich folks, on how they need to understand the prison system. But I realized there's a lot of people who can teach at that level to universities, speaking mm-hmm. at colleges. So I kept going up. So I had to get to the point where, like last week, I sat with the Commission of Corrections for one of the states. And me and this man sat at dinner, and we had a conversation about making the system better. Policies that are going to affect everybody. Not five people, not your cousin, not your son. This policy affects everybody, white, black, and Spanish. That's where we want to be in conversation with the commissioners, with the governors, with the people who are running things. Most people don't understand the correction system. It goes governor, office of public safety. There's a secretary. He sits on the cabinet for the governor. He appoints an undersecretary to oversees prisons. The undersecretary appoints a commissioner who oversees the system. And then there are wardens and it goes down from there. I'm in the office of public safety. This man is the boss of the wardens. He's the boss of the commissioner. Mm. He oversees everything. You're busy talking to the to the rec guy. <laughs> the rec guy can't make no decisions. Yeah. That lieutenant you get on the phone can't make any decisions. So if you want to affect the system, you have to be in dialogue with the people who are in control. And you seem like to be a man that's in control and that can get into those places and definitely have a seat at the table. Because oftentimes when you hear about reentry or prison reform, it's people that don't have skin in the game. You got skin in the game. I got skin in the game. And that's why we're able to sit here and dialogue and talk like this. We get ready to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. And I am your host, Raheem Shabazz. And for those that are just joining us, we are sitting here with Andre Norman. We'll be right back. Necessary Blackness Podcast don't accept sponsorship from third-party corporations or influencers. We are supported by the people. If you are an avid listener of the podcast, consider donating to our cause. Go to elementarygenocide.com and click on the donation link. Elementary Genocide provides a critical expose of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and the connection between slavery, capitalism, and the prison industrial complex. Visit our website at www.elementarygenocide.com. Now available, Elementary Genocide, the School to Prison Pipeline. Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration. And the newest release, Elementary Genocide 3, Academic Holocaust. Log on today to purchase your very own three-set docuseries. 
This is Shalee. When I'm not in the gym, I'm checking my son out on his podcast each and every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Make sure you check out Raheem Shabazz. Yeah, this is Professor Ed Garns, founder of The Wonderful from Afros and Shell Toast and Sweet Tea Ethics. When I am not spreading liberation theology throughout my classrooms as an African-centered therapist, I am chilling with my homie, Raheem Shabazz, on a Necessary Blackness Podcast. It's essential. Yo, what's up, y'all? This is the lowrider guru, Thomas T.J. Lofton from Compton, California. When I'm traveling around the world or I'm in the car, I got Necessary Blackness podcast on checking out my man, Ryan Shabazz. Yo, what up? It is the Mohawk and Real Talk and Living Fully Businessfully, Dave Anderson of the Business Fully podcast. You know me when you see me. You've heard me in these streets. If you haven't, that's just me breathing down your neck. You are listening to the Necessary Blackness podcast with my brother, my homeboy, my main Number one cousin from another oven, my man Ryan Shabazz, man. Get in, get your mind right because it's necessary. This is Siraj, founder of the Man in the Mirror Project, hanging out with Raheem Shabazz all the way from the UK, representing that Necessary Blackness podcast. Peace. This is Zaza Ali. And when I am not studying the science of the universe and the laws of creation, I am listening to the big homie Raheem Shabazz on Necessary Blackness. Make sure you support. Peace. Persons interested in broadcasting a commercial can reach us via email at necessaryblacknesspodcast at gmail.com. Necessary Blackness is distributed on all major podcast platforms iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, SoundCloud, Podomatic, and Google Play. We'll also promote your business and product across our various social media networks, reaching over 100,000 people daily. Hey, what's going on, man? This is Arthur Emma Henry here. Whenever I want to get the latest on politics, social life issues facing our black community, I tune in to Necessary Blackness with Raheem Shabazz. Yo, that's what I'm talking about, man. You'll hear it here first. <laughs> now our feature presentation. Peace and Black Power family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are back with our special guest. For those that are just joining us, we have Andre Norman in the building with us. And before we went to our commercial break, he was telling us a lot of things that many of y'all probably are not familiar with. And if you are familiar with it, definitely fully familiar with it now. So I want to just go to another topic of discussion. And what I want to talk about is prison reentry and returning citizens, because whether people realize it or not, there's 65 million Americans living with a criminal record. And there are 2.5 million people incarcerated as we speak. And over 85% of them will be returning back to society at some point in time. What are your thoughts on uh, re-entry for our returning citizens and what can be done to expedite that process and make them be able to integrate back into society? One of the few things I want to talk about when we mentioned prison re-entry is when people come home from prison, what are they going to do? How are they going to survive? How are they going to live? That's one discussion. The concept of re-entry, preparing somebody to be out. Let's look at it from that perspective first. The preparation of the inmate to be prepared to go into society and function and do well. Most states, most counties, most facilities start their prison reentry 
in the last six months, maybe back as far as two years, depending. Some will start tagging people around five, but for the most part, it gets intensive between two years and six months left. So you hold somebody for 20 years, and the last five, you start glancing at them. The last two, you get them in that silo. In the last six months, it's an extreme push. It is my belief that reentry should start at the front door. When a gentleman or the lady walks in on the front door with that 10, 15, 20-year sentence, the concept of reentry should be put in their brain then, not allowed to be thrown into a gang-infested scenario or a jungle-like mentality or just a totally depressed state of being and have this person be traumatized for 75, 80% of their time, whether it's violence, depression, or just craziness going on, then after 85% of your time living in trauma, you want to spend 15% of my time trying to teach me to prepare to be in the world. I'm not ready to deal with my life in here yet because I've been living in trauma for eight and a half, 10 years. Scared am I going to get raped? Scared am I going to get beat? I'm getting extorted. I'm getting smacked in the mouth. I'm nervous. It's just every day a person lives in fear. Every day a person lives in trauma for 85% of their time. And then the last 15%, you want to prepare them to fill out a job application. You want to prepare them on how to fill out a rent application or how to get a soft skill and answer a door or phone or something. It's not realistic. The culture of prison has to change. If the culture of prison doesn't change, reentry programs will continue not to work. Majority of prison reentry programs do not work because the mind has been so damaged that a job application and filling it out is not going to help. Well, there's some that may argue, well, it worked for you. You out here doing marvelous things. What made you different or separate you from the average person that is coming out of jail today? I'm glad you changed it to what made me different. A, I'm not different. Um, I went in, I had the same traumas of bad parenting, bad neighborhoods, public schools, as the next man sitting with me. What made it different for me, what made the difference in my life was when I was able to turn my thinking around, I was able to access programs and I was able to stay focused. It is so hard when you, everybody has their epiphany moment where they wake up one day and say, this is not the life. Whether you're a gang member, a drug dealer, a pimp, a hustler, a shakedown artist, and you're in jail, you're in prison, you're doing your thing. And the culture says, stay with it. The same way when you were hustling in the street, the culture said, stay with it. Mm-hmm. There was no really dollar amount you can get out at. There's too many brothers who went to prison who were millionaires in the street. So why would you not opt out when you got five, six, ten million dollars? It's the culture and the mindset that says, keep rolling, stay with it. That mindset and culture transfers into the prison system where it says, keep doing the psychological damaging things, stay psychopath, stay crazy, stay with it. So until we change that around, it's not going to help. But luckily for me, when I went to turn my life around, mm-hmm. I had old people. I remember my third grade teacher, Miss Oliver, my sixth grade teacher, Miss Ellis, my ninth grade teacher, Mr. Bevilacqua, I can, Mr. Solis. I can list off a bunch of teachers who had spoke kindness into my life, who spoke love into my life. My older sister, Imani, who encouraged me once upon a time. Those were the things that I held on to when I turned my life around, when I turned my direction around, when I turned my attitude around. I've watched people have their epiphany moment and try to do good, but there's nothing for them to hold on to. 
you believe this or you cannot believe this. There are some people in this world, a lot of them in prison, they've never heard a kind word. They've never heard a positive word. They've never heard an encouraging word. They've been called, you ain't no good. You just like your daddy. You just a criminal. You ain't nothing but a thug. They've only heard negativity their entire lives. So when they have the epiphany moment and they make their turn, now the wherewithal to stay focused is internal. Mm. My wherewithal was internal. Miss Oliver was in my spirit. Mr. Bevilacqua was in my spirit. My grandmother was in my spirit. And I could hold on to their past words of encouragement. A lot of guys, when they make that turn, there's nothing inside for them to hold on to. So when the wind comes, it blows them back into the pile. Now, you spoke about epiphany moments and having someone to say that they love you. Now, when we was in Ohio together, we went to the woman's prison. Yes. And you was able to get them. Initially, you know, they wasn't speaking and they all came in and they were separated amongst themselves. You actually got them to say what they love about one another, to hug each other. And at the end, they was crying tears of joy because some of the things that they said that other people didn't ever say to them, as you said right. earlier. Um, what is that experience like, and um, how does that affect inmates? When I was in prison, I was doing a program called Second Thoughts. It was They bring juveniles up from the lockup to the adult lockup, and we'd have conversations. Mm -hmm. And we would talk to them, because we they're us, minus four years or five years. They're 15, in three years, they'll be adults, and they do the same thing, they'll be over where we are. But the program was designed to have adult prisoners talk to juvenile prisoners, because we were on the same line or the same wavelength. Yeah. There was a guy named Tommy Koontz, who helped design the program, and he designed the training for the program. Everything I'm doing right now, was based in the training that I did in prison with Tommy Coates. Okay. How to how to have how to hold a group, how to facilitate a group, reflective listening, how to listen to people and hear what they're saying, how to hear what they're not saying, hear their spirit, hear their moods. So Tommy taught me how to actually run a group and pay attention to people's pains. And I already had the insight of really just being perceptive and being on point. You added in a training from Tommy. So when I go into a room, they're in prison not because they're criminals. They're in prison because they're in pain. It's not to negate any crime they committed. Healthy people with great lives very rarely go to prison. It's usually people who have emotional scars, emotional trauma, who can't comport themselves that go to prison. There are tons of people right. who have issues, but they're whole enough or, or connected enough to go to counseling on the outside. They can reach out to people and get assistance. Those brothers and sisters who don't know how to access the, the support systems in a free world access drugs as a way to cope. They access a boyfriend who's going to help them through. And that's what happens. So when I go into these scenarios, I understand the people in the room, whether it be man or woman, white or black, young or old, are there 98% of the time based on unresolved trauma. So I don't want to talk to you about a job. I don't want to talk to you about an application. I want to talk to you about your emotions and how to manage them. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. You are hearing this first right here on Necessary Blackness Podcast. And for those that are just joining us, we are sitting with Norman. We are sitting with Andre, pardon me, Norman. And 
we are talking about re-entry. We are talking about prison. And now we're going to talk about what it took for you to become, to go from being a gang leader to teaching leadership training to Fortune 500 companies. I would say all the skills and all the aptitude that I use when I was in the life is applicable in the current life that I'm in. Somehow people believe the skill set isn't transferable. I'll give you one story. I'm in London and I'm meeting with a president, president of a bank. And he was telling me how three of his top vice presidents quit his bank and they joined another bank because they paid him more money. And at the next conference they're going to and they're going for contracts, he's now competing against people that he trained up and raised up for the next contract. And he was just distraught. Wow. And he says it happens all the time. I'm like, I don't get that. He says, I hire somebody. I train them up over 10 years. I promote them to vice president, teach them all of our secrets. Then they leave our team and go join another team and they work against us. And I couldn't really understand it. And I said, that never happened in their life. We've had people tell, move down south, go live with their auntie, go to church. But nobody ever quit one gang, joined the enemy, and shot back. He says, Dre, it happens all the time with us. And we kept the conversation going. Now I was talking about how gang members are loyal to a fault. They're loyal to get 100 years. They'll take a life sentence. They'll sit on their, their brother's blood who died the day before in the same corner. And he said, can you teach my people that type of loyalty? Can you teach my people that type of communication and, and trust? So we came up with a concept and then a plan, and I created a corporate retention program based on gang loyalty. Wow. So I teach old for the most part, old white guys and companies, loyalty based on gang principles. Old rich white guys. I mean, yeah, them too. But uh, <laughs> minus, to, minus to guns. Oh, okay, okay. Minus okay. to guns. Now, when we was in Ohio and um, we was at the men's prison this time, um, and the staff members, they had heard uh, um, a speech you had gave. And they wanted you to re- uh, repeat... Um, the uh the section about uh the hamburger the hamburger story yeah yeah could you enlighten our listeners to that um the hamburger story I'm in maximum security prison I'm deemed whatever kind of leader I'm supposed to be and I got hungry so I got off my bunk walked downstairs went out the gate went down the hall through like two more gates got to any control where they sit in the bubble and they control the whole prison they opened the gate to the hallway that led to the kitchen. I got to the end of that. They opened two more gates. I knocked on the door, and the CO let me in. I get into the kitchen. I told one of the kitchen workers, and make me a hamburger. I told somebody else, yo, man, make me um, a, a vanilla shake and make me some fries. And I'm kind of like just standing there waiting. Then this guy comes out of the back office. He's like, who are you? I'm like, who are you? He's like, I'm the food service administrator. And he read up, rattled off his degrees and how he just came over from some great restaurant someplace and we should be honored to have him there. And he said, well, who are you? At the time, Warren G had to regulate a song out. So I said, I'm yeah. the regulator. <laughs> he says, what do you regulate? I said, if you go home or not. I said, dude, I'm doing 100 years. I said, if I kill you right now, I'm going to go to SEG. I'll be down there for like six years maybe. I'm going to get out. I'm going to come right back to this kitchen and get something to eat. I said, you still going to be dead. I ain't got no wife. I ain't got no kids. I really ain't got no family I'm connected to. I really don't care. So... If your wife and kids are going to miss you, mine's ain't because I ain't got none. So I'm not trying to be a tough guy. I'm not trying to be a hard ass. But I need you to think about this. I walked through seven locked gates to get here. 
Everybody in his kitchen is doing exactly what I asked him to do. You're the only one with an issue. So my question to you is this. Do I get a hamburger today or do I get it in six years? And well, he thought about it. Pie. And he was like, make them two. <laughs> and I mean, Man. at the end of the day, it's hard to say because I've been there. It's hard to say because I get it. Our own, the worst part about prisons is we run them as inmates and we're running them with the wrong mentality. Us running the prison isn't a bad thing, but we're running the prisons with the wrong mentality. We still have the hate that we grew up with. We still have the miseducation that we grew up with. We still have the animosity towards each other that we grew up with. We still have the mindset of education and studying is bad that we grew up with. So when we come into prisons and we're, again, there's like one one CO to every 20 prisoners. So we got the numbers. We really run it. They just kind of manage the, the doors. We're not running it to make ourselves better. We're running it and we're making ourselves worse. Wow. So us running the prison is a given. But we as prisoners, we as, you could say, black men and Latinos and whites, whoever's in charge is technically making it worse on ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. I'm not advocating that we give control away, but we have to do better with the control that we have. Yeah, we got control, but that control is whoever comes into prison is not a part of our inner circle. We rob them. We extort them. For sure. Then that's not running the prison in a, in a proper uh, manner. Running the prison in a proper manner is making sure that the essentials is being met. You know, your needs is being met. That uh, you are making sure that uh, rules and regulations that are being passed are beneficial to the prisoners. Now, I would say when I first, first came to prison, my OG pulled me to the side. The first question he asked me, Dominic said, Andre, did you go to trial or did you cop out? I said, I went to trial. He made me go to the library and sit with the old timers and learn the law. But when I got to the library, they were trying to teach me how to research my case. I didn't want to research my case. I wanted to hang out with the fellas. So I used to skip the library and go to the yard. Had he forced me, and that wouldn't be the big force because I did what he said, do it at the end of the day. Had he made me stay in the library, I didn't went home in 12 months. Mm. But I was so busy trying to hang out, I didn't go home for 14 years. Mm. Um, again, we have governance. We are governing our neighborhoods. We are governing our prisons. Now, granted, we don't own either one, yeah. but we govern them, <laughs> and we're governing them wrong. We're governing ourselves into a worse situation. Wow. That was heavy. This is Necessary Blackness Podcast. My name is Raheem Shabazz, and I'm sitting here with Andre Norman. And what we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to speak to Andre about his recent visit to the state of South Carolina, and we're going to find out what's going on down there. So stay tuned. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognize no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Yo, check out the award-winning docuseries Elementary Genocide. 
This docuseries provides a critical expose of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and the connection between slavery, capitalism, and the prison industrial complex. This docuseries features Dr. Umar Johnson, Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, Killer Mike, David Banner, Professor James Small, Kaba Kamene, and so many other people. Check out Elementary Genocide, the School to Prison Pipeline, Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, and the latest installment, Elementary Genocide 3, the Academic Holocaust. It's all available now at elementarygenocide.com. Tune in for the drop. Peace and Power, this E-Report Live. Be sure to tune in to Necessary Blackness each and every Wednesday night, 6 p.m. with the brother Raheem Shabazz. This is KB The Voice, and you're checking out Necessary Blackness, the podcast. And whenever I'm looking for commentary and insight into our viewpoints, I check out Necessary Blackness. Hey, this is Michael M. Hotel. I want to invite you to tune in to the Necessary Blackness show with Raheem Shabazz. Very powerful information, the type of information we need to educate our people, teach them about their history. We have to remember that your thoughts create feelings, your feelings create actions and behaviors, your actions and behaviors create results. So remember, right knowledge corrects wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. Mod Hotel. Hey, this is Marcia from Civil Rights and Civil Wrongs. And when I want to stay connected to the people, I tune in to the fitted hat philosopher Raheem Shabazz on Necessary Blackness Podcast. Peace and Black Power family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are back from our quick commercial break. And for those that are just joining us, we have Andre Norman in the building with us. And while we was on our commercial break, me and the brother Dre, we was chopping it up. Um, And we was talking about South Carolina. I don't know um, if many of y'all are aware, but in the state of South Carolina, Seven people was murdered in a prison disturbance back in April. And this happened in one even, evening. So you had seven people that was murdered and 20 was injured. So, Dre, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts relative to that situation? Uh, my thoughts relative to the brothers who passed and the brothers who were injured, um, it was just a, a tragic loss, man. Um, that's seven families who never see their loved ones again. Um, that's 17 families who have injured loved ones who have to live with that trauma. I mean, there's always going to be reasons for dispute. There's always going to be the concept of, well, they're in prison. They don't count. Everybody counts. So when I hear that seven brothers died, it hurts. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it, it, I can't say right or wrong, but it, it's just a bad look. You know what I'm saying? When I get that message, that's not the message I'm looking to hear. When I hear seven, 17 brothers um, got hurt and injured and brothers having to lay lay out and bleed some bled to death how they died I don't know but it's just it's just not a good look man and um so when I got the word I'm saying that that's what went down it, it touched my heart and is that the reason why you went out there to speak to the prisoners I got invited by the reentry coordinator um, I was at a conference and I was doing a training and the reentry coordinator for the Department of Corrections happened to sit in on my training. Mm-hmm. And when she heard me, she said she came, she waited till I mean, I do a lot of talking and networking after. She waited till the last person left. And she said, Andre. And she introduced herself. And she said, I need you to come to South Carolina. We have people who need you. And we need inmates who need you. We have staff who need you. We have families who need you. The state needs you. Mm-hmm. Because we have a problem and a situation that's not getting better. Mm, wow. 
Very unfortunate, very unfortunate. But you was able to go down there. And for those that don't know, um, the entire state of South Carolina is on prison lockdown. However, they made a concession. And this was only for you to come in and actually speak to these inmates. What did you do and was the brothers and sisters that are confined in prison, was they receptive to your message? Well, first, the entire state's not on lockdown. Most, all the maximum security prisons and some of the level two, the level three is max, they're locked down. Level two is like a step below that. Some of those are locked down. Okay. Um, level ones, people are going out in the community doing their thing. But um, they wanted to make change. From the administrative standpoint, I used to ask people, what's your why? Why do you want me to speak? I know what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm going to bring. I know what my team's going to drop. So wh- why are you opening the door is on you. My thing is open the door. You see? Because yeah. at the end of the day, if people are hungry and I got the food and you're going to let me give it to them, I don't care what your why is. If I know the food is good food and I know that they're legitimately hungry and I'm giving them good food and good knowledge, I don't care what your why is. Okay. Because they need their food in this moment. So when I got there... Um, we went to the facilities. I met with the staff, the administrative, and they were like, listen, to their credit, at that moment, they wanted to make it better. They're like, we want to make it better. So we went in, and the deal was, all they've been locked down since April, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They might come out one day a week for a shower for like eight minutes. You get eight minutes out your cell to take a shower per week, and the rest of the time, you just locked in a cell. I'm talking about no, it's just it's just a, not a good look. But for this week, when we were there, they opened all the cells. We go into a housing unit, 150 men, they let them all out. And maybe for like an hour, whatever the time frame we were there, they were outside of their cells. And we went to every maximum security prison and some of the level two security prisons opened all the doors. And everybody got a chance to come out, greet their brothers, walk around, stretch their legs, just have some space. I mean, to be locked in an eight by 10 foot cell 24 hours a day is a tough look. And the reason why they locked down is because of fear of another prison disturbance. When you So that had to be a forced narrative to see that you come and there's no prison disturbance, not no fight, no argument. What happens is, from the administrative standpoint, there's an uprising, there's a situation, a lot of people lose their lives. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain that to the public why you have dead people in prison. That is hard to explain. Why you have people injured to this extreme in prison. That's hard to explain. So now, in the interim, right away, you have to lock the place down and get control to find out what's going on. Now, you've had this happen. You locked everybody in. So your question is, is there going to be retaliation? Is this over? I mean, is everybody done and over with this? And common sense would say, no. <laughs> if, <laughs> if my brother just died, I'm going to be mad. If my man just died, I'm going to be mad. If I'm one of the guys who got stabbed, I'm going to be mad. So common sense says no. So they're operating on the common sense principle that there's going to be some form of retaliation. So they're stuck. They're going to catch 22. We can't keep them locked down forever, but how do we stop retaliation if there's going to be any? We have no relationship with these men. We have no real rapport with these men. We have no influence with these men. We just control the cell doors. So if we open the cell doors, 
how do we know, how do we get them to be right and, and behave? So they're stuck with, the, okay, we want to let them off lockdown, but how do we control the behavior when they come off lockdown? That's the administrative standpoint. That's how they're stuck because they don't want people, more people to be hurt. Yeah. But from my perspective, the altercation that happened, happened. We can't undo that. But I know people's passion. I know their heart. I know their spirit. And we went in there. I brought a team of brothers with me and we spoke to them. And it was probably for the first time they heard conversation. They heard hope. They heard inspiration. They saw examples of people who looked just like them, people who acted just like them, people who did time just like them, people who had no hope at times just like them, now on the other side. And mm. bringing back a positive message of unity, of accountability, and forgiveness. Now, you spoke about them being receptive because you are an individual that um, was where they at been through the trials and tribulation that many of them are currently going through. So my next question to you is, what's next for Andre Norman, and when are you going to take me back with you into those prisons? There's a lot of people who want to go inside. There's a lot of people who need to come inside in different capacities. But the most important thing, other than just rushing to the prison and banging on the doors, is being prepared to do so. When you go mm -hmm. inside, that you can be helpful. Um, I remember when they had the Ferguson situation in Missouri. Yeah, you was part of that. Right? When they had the Ferguson riots, they called our team after 15 months. Every black leader in America went to Ferguson, Missouri and did a photo op at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. None of them made an impact, from my understanding, because the riots and the protests didn't stop. They called me in. I came in after the non-verdict, and I went out in the street. Not at 2 in the afternoon. I went out straight at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm seeing brothers out there who were suiting up, getting ready to do their thing and protest. And I talked to them while they were angry. I talked to them at 2 o'clock in the morning. I talked to them while they were upset and riled and ready to go and ready to do battle. And I asked them real questions. Why are you out here? What does a win look like for you? What does it take to change the narrative? And a lot of them didn't know. They were just angry and fed up. Justfully so. So I talked to them. Then I got their leadership amongst them. I said, listen, let me give you some direction. Let me give you some support. Then I went across town. Again, you have to have relationships with people who control stuff. That's I went right. to the mayor of Ferguson. I went through a friend who brought me the mayor of Ferguson, the police chief of Ferguson, the man who ran for governor of Missouri. We took all of those folks back to Harvard University where I had an office and we had a big meeting and symposium. Now, when we got back to have the symposium, the concept was the stakeholders on the street side, the stakeholders in the city government would all have a conversation and I was going to facilitate it and it was all about how to solve it. We got to Harvard, there were people there who didn't want a solution. They just wanted to scream and yell some more. So they had some people who protested a, the, the mayor coming, the man who ran for governor coming. We don't want the police chief here. He can't speak. He shouldn't be allowed to speak. I'm like, well, this man's the mayor of the city. If you like it or not, he's the mayor of Ferguson. If you like it or not, this man's the police chief, chief of police for Ferguson. You ain't got to like him. He got his job. And if you don't interact with them, you'll make no change. Yeah. So they protested and they screamed to the office. And they said, okay, well, since we can't stop him, 
you got to let some of us be on the panel. And I was like, no. But there was like, the guy caved and he let some people on the panel. So now we got all these extra people who weren't in my first agenda on the panel. And I tried to talk to them on the front end. They didn't want to talk. They wanted to come in there and scream at the people, yell at the people, call them names, put their fists in the air. Then when all that was said and done, went home and told their friends, yeah, I told them. Yeah, I told them. Yeah, you told them, but what did you change? Nothing. You know what I'm saying? You made a, you made a great inst- Instagram video, but what, what impact are you having on the streets of Ferguson? You know what I'm saying? Cool. I got a black fist too, but I want to see a black fist stretched out in the street with blood around it. I came to talk solutions. They came to scream and yell. They jacked the whole panel up. I'm not going. For, I was disappointed. They jacked the panel up. But luckily, Charles Ogletree. You know what I'm saying hero of them all. He raised up Barack and Michelle. He that dude. I know who you. He was about. smart enough, and he was wise enough to take the whole group and put us together away from the people who, after the panel was over, we all sat together. He said, "Hey, let's have a dinner." He took us all to dinner. And we had a group conversation amongst us. And the police chief and the mayor talked to the protesters. And the thing I said to the brothers was, you don't have to like them, but you have to talk to them like men. You can disagree with them, but you have to talk to them like men. You can't cuss somebody out, scream at somebody, and expect them to respond to you. Because if I told him, I said, if he said to you half of what you said to him, you would have started a fight. Yeah. He can't fight you because he's on the 6 o'clock news for brutality. Talk to him like men. We had dialogue. We had conversations like men. And when they all went back to Ferguson, the next time the brothers lined up to protest, the difference was the police chief knew him and could trust him that he was a man of his word. There was relationship. Yeah. So the pro- they would go out and peacefully protest, no beanbags, no, no tear gas, and things was cool. I didn't go on CNN talking about I stopped the rides at Ferguson. No, I facilitated conversations for solution. So when we came in this time, we wanted to facilitate conversations of solution. Everybody wants to run up and scream. This is not about screaming. This is not about yelling. Oh, this is so unfair. Oh, this is racist. Oh, this ain't right. Oh, this is too solutions. My mother told me when I was a little boy, have a solution or shut your mouth. Because hmm. making noise don't do nothing for anybody. So when we went to South Carolina, when I sat with the administrators, it was about solutions. And those are the discussions that we have. How do we solve this problem? They understand that there's hurt feelings, not just about the the situation in April, just about their correctional system, programming, family visits, I'm saying cleanliness, um, attitudes, hope, I'm saying staff training, inmate insights. I mean, across the board. Not to pick one over the other. They said, you know something? We want to do and be better. Are we the best in the nation? No. Are we the worst in the nation? No. But we want to be the best. We don't want to be the worst. And that's why you're here, Andre. Help us be the best. And you know what? It takes situations like that because New York New York State, you know, they have a lot of programs. The inmates are, are treated not the best. But there's a lot of things that are going on as far as like programs and and different uh, things that inmates have, like TVs, your own hot pot, able to cook. And a lot of those rights that the inmates got and the college programs, it came came out of the Attica riot. 
you know. Um, but slowly by surely, a lot of that is being taken back. And it's unfortunate it takes for a prison disturbance to happen in order for people to start to treat them like human. So it's a good thing that there's individuals like you that can go in there and facilitate that talk and to bring about change and also bring forth the solution. That's the main thing. There's a problem and there has to be a solution to the problem and there has to be someone that can speak to the hearts, the minds, and souls of the inmates as well as the administrator in order to bring about that solution. So I know there's going to be a lot of people that want solutions. So they're going to want to know how to find Andre Norman. Where can they reach you at on social media? Well, I'm not a super social media guy. I literally had a conversation with one of my young brothers this morning, and he was looking online. And he said, we were talking, he said, Andre, I see all these guys with books and CDs and podcasts and stories and clever marketing, and they ain't saying shit. He said, it's all a hustling game to get in front of people to get them out to hustle out their money. That's the new hustle is to get out and say you're going to do something, and collect a bunch it. of money, and do sure. nothing. That's the new hustle. He said, they're not doing anything tangible. There's nothing they can point to. There's nothing measurable. It's just a lot of people running hustling game. You just find out what the people's weaknesses are and you speak to them. And then you get them into the back. Oh, shoot me money on Cash App. Shoot me this and shoot. I mean, I got sick of looking at this stuff on Instagram. I hadn't been on it for years. I didn't know nothing about it. When I got on, it was a bunch of madness. So I don't do social media heavy. Um, so You have a website. Though. I have a website. My website is AndreNorman.com. A-N-D-R-E-N-O-R-M-A-N.com. Um, you go on there. You can My email's on there. Some of the work I'm on there. You can go on YouTube and see some of the stuff. I would say 80% of the stuff I do is not online. None of my, most, is like 2% two, 2 of my Ferguson stuff is online. Most of that's not online. Um, I went to St. Louis in 210, rebuilt the school. There was a school that was just out of control. I fixed that. I've done gang work in California. I've worked in Honduras. I worked in Guatemala. I worked with child soldiers in Liberia. I mean, none of my Liberia stuff is online. None of my Guatemala, I think there's a couple of videos from Guatemala, nothing from Honduras. There's nothing from Sweden. I mean, I'm not promoting myself. Mm -hmm. I'm not into promotions. I'm not into the, like, the, I want to be famous. I want to do the work. All right, Andre, last closing words. What you want to tell the people? What I want to tell the people is that my brothers in South Carolina are struggling. Um, and it's not just South Carolina, but we're starting with South Carolina. South Carolina SC is ground zero. Uh, we want to start. We can. Everybody has their thing. My cousins in Michigan. My brothers in Chicago. My brothers in L.A. We have to pick one place, going collectively, and get a win. If a thousand of us are spread out, working in a thousand different places, we're making incremental successes. If a thousand people all come to South Carolina, we can get a win. Mm -hmm. We can actually correct the correctional system and get a win, and then the other 49 states can follow suit. All the talent, all the great minds, all the great people are in their own space, their own agenda. South Carolina wasn't my agenda. The brothers who died cried out. The brothers who were there doing 85% of their time are crying out. You know what I'm saying? So they want help. Everybody wants help. But until we agree to pick one place take all our resources and energy and fix that one place and get it right, 
then we can replicate that. But to have five brothers in California doing it, three brothers in Texas, two brothers in Florida, three people in Michigan, all the talent is spread out. Act like we Golden State Warriors. Let's pile up, get a dream team, a killer team, and just crush this problem of corrections. Stop trying to be about you. Stop, let, stop letting it be about you. Let it be about the brothers and sisters who are locked down and need our help collectively to come together. Because if we don't get collective, then we ain't going to get a win. And they're going to keep suffering. Absolutely. Well, I want to be one of those brothers that collectively come together. So once again, my brother, when are you taking me on the road with you? I'm, <laughs> bro, listen, man. You know. Nah, I know how to reach uh, you, uh, you, you. You got my number. We're going to make it happen. You got my number. You can definitely hit me. And I sat with somebody this morning. I literally was on the road for six days. I spoke from seven in the morning to 10 at night. I wasn't doing two speeches a day. I was doing 10 a day. And I came back. I got home last night. Somebody called me. This sister who's doing work wanted to meet me. And she was doing all this wonderful work. So I, I got about my bed. It's to my rest day. And I go to meet with her. And the short story, great sister, great story, not prepared. Mm. I'm saying she wasn't prepared. When I started hitting with her, I do direct. If you don't know nothing about Andre Norman, I'm going to ask you direct questions. I'm gonna, I want direct responses. <laughs> I ain't got time for extra stuff. And the long story short, she wasn't prepared to be in a meeting with me. She wasn't prepared to be in a meeting with anybody who was going to make something happen. Yeah. She was ready to be in a meeting with someone who was going to like philosophize and theorize and throw some books and shit that they read around and quote some people who are doing stuff. I don't know. Do you know this one? No. Do you know that one? No. I know the brothers in South Carolina. You know this one? No. You know that one? No. I know them people up in Columbus who need treatment. If you ain't doing the work, I ain't paying you no attention. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the moral of that is be prepared. I mean, get prepared. I'll meet with anybody. I'm saying I, I still was able to help the sister, but at one level, man, you could have did that next week. <laughs> Be prepared. Stop telling yourself you're the best just because you said so. Become the best study. Every cop in America studied under a cop. Every lawyer in America studied under a lawyer. Every judge studied under a judge. You know what I'm saying? Every teacher studied with teachers. Now, when it comes to this, nobody studies under nobody. They just make up their own lines and their own books and their own theories. Instead of saying, hey, everything I know, people taught me. I have no shame in that. That's why That's why one of your quotes is that you are the sum of all the people that mentored you. I am the sum total sum of total. all the people who have mentored me. That's right. Most were black, a lot were white, some were Spanish, some were Jewish, some were Catholic. You know what I'm saying? I work with everybody except for government witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> so as long as you're in a government witness, right, you can hit me up. If you messed around and tripped on the stand... Spare me. Yeah, that's what it is, man. And um, yo, I, I definitely uh, appreciate Andre. Um, I asked him, yo, what's up? I'm ready to go. And um, yo, he took me on, on, on the road, let me, you know, gave me the opportunity to get up there and speak. And when he tell you that he spoke for sun up to sundown, yo, he's not lying. <laughs> now tell him how you try to opt out one night. Oh. The second night, we was at the we was Who at the was that? We was at the correctional center, treatment center, when they were doing a substance abuse, and I was doing another session and another session. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yo, yeah. when we leaving? I'm like, yo, when we leaving? And the I thing see. about it is, right, we there 
you you locked in basically. You locked in with the inmates, so it ain't no yo. I'm gonna go outside. Smoke I'll be back and smoke a cigarette. Yo, I'm gonna wait for you in the car. Nah, homie. <laughs> when they crack that gate, you're going home. Yo, we ain't leave out there like almost what two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but this is the thing. When I was in those cells, I wanted someone to show up for me. Yeah, yeah. When I was yeah. in those schools, them public rotten public schools, I wanted someone to show up for me. When I was in the middle of my stuff, I wanted someone to show up to me. So I had a choice. I can either be in there encouraging and inspiring and teaching, or I can be in my hotel room watching ESPN. Mm. I didn't go to Ohio. I didn't go to South Carolina. I don't go to LA. I don't go to places to watch TV. I have a TV at home. You know what I'm saying? So when I go, somebody's mother and father is depending on me getting this word to this person. Somebody's right. family is depending on me getting the word to this person. And even more so, there's somebody who's going to be a victim is depending on me getting a word to this person. So they don't want to be victimized. That's they don't right. want to be neglected. They don't want to be left out. They don't want to see their loved ones hurt. So if I got to step to 2 o'clock in the morning, I'll step to 2 o'clock in the morning. And there is no opting out. There's no tapping out. Yeah, I ain't tap out, though. I stayed. You stayed. I stayed. You had I no stayed. choice. I had the car keys. <laughs> I stayed. But, yo, I, I definitely enjoyed it because, um, like I said, you know, um, you definitely touched the heart of, of them sisters. You allowed me to speak to them. And, um, yo, they was crying. You know what I mean? And um, they, they, they was hugging each other. And um, it, it was like a breakthrough moment for them because they was in so much pain. And, and you came and, and you gave them hope. And then another um, thing that you did that I, I think was real profound is when you was telling them how they can be entrepreneurs. This is when we went back to the uh, mail facility and you took them in the room and, and, and you went on the board and, and, and you showed them the numbers and the, and the practical way they could do it and to see them like grabbing paper, writing it down. and like it, it, it's, it's, it's a sight to see because you don't really see that. You know what I mean? And they're not going to get that from the programs that they already have in, 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 um, in, installed in there. And a good fact of that was the people that had certain programs was calling you in there to talk to kids like, look, I can't get through to him. He's about to go home. Could you please come in here and talk to him? And they run the program. My, my experience is most of the staff, as far as program staff care, and they want... They realized that, okay, this guy connects better, let him go. When I was in South Carolina this week, there was a lot, I mean, there was one of the wardens. He, by the end of the day, he was giving 20-minute speeches too because it was his opportunity to share his message. He wants these guys, this particular warden, a couple of them, they want the guys to do better. They just come from another world. They don't have the same connectivity. Nobody wants to see anybody suffer. Yeah. So he doesn't know how to get through to them. So when he saw that window open up and their ears were wide open and their eyes wide open, he jumped through the window and started grab the mic and he went in. We had a couple staff members grab the mic this week and just come from the heart like, yo, I want to see y'all do good. And they meant it. They don't have that space. There's no relationship there. So you're forced to sit back. If you're a staff person or admin who cares there's no lane for you to share your love or your concern or your experience because it's, you got the keys, we locked in, keep it pushing. But it, for some of these staff, they care. Yeah, they really do and care. And it's not everybody want to see you suffer. There was some staff people that helped me out, you know what I'm saying, when I was trying to come get out of that, that mindset. 
let him in is the anger management block. I was the worst nightmare in a hundred years. They didn't have to let me in there. <laughs> but people care. And this week, and the same thing in Columbus, and the same thing in Lima, and the same thing in Chicago, when people get an opportunity to share that, that I want to see you do better. You got to see I, the moment. <laughs> I had wardens grabbing mics. At the head of programs driving mics, and they're like trying to drive it home, and that's what you want. Because yeah. at some point, I'm going to leave, and I you need people in your state and in your city on fire, and that's what it is. And the one thing I'll say in closing, they say, Andre, you're a motivational speaker. How do I? Be- I always get how do I become a motivational speaker? You go get all these other guys' books and CDs and tapes, and I'm not going to say they're tricking you. You're never going to learn to be a motivational speaker listening to motivational speaking tapes. You will never learn to be a motivational speaker listening to a motivational speaker because you're not getting the nuances. You can watch LeBron play basketball seven days a week. You ain't getting no better watching him. (laughs) (laughs) Until he teaches you his techniques, you ain't going to get no better. So speaking, the one thing people don't tell you, don't. if you want to be a speaker, do not read or buy another motivational speaking kit. It will not do anything for you. At least 90% of the people will not succeed with that. You want to go get books on group dynamics. You want to get books on group facilitation because that's what you're really doing. What you saw me doing wasn't motivational speaking. You saw me running a therapy group from the front of the room. Mm. (laughs) I'm doing therapy. I don't care if it's 10 ladies in a substance abuse center or 1,000 people in a hall or 500 people in a conference. I'm doing therapy. From the stage. And everybody has issues. Believe that. I don't care how much money or how much time they got. Everybody has issues. No more. If you want to be a motivational speaker, please do not buy another CD, <laughs> program, kit, $500, $5,000 training. I'm not hating on the network. they my fam. But if you want to be a speaker, go get group dynamic books, group facilitation books, and study those. They will teach you how to interact, understand body language, understand how to talk to people, understand how to engage. You can get to, then once you have that, then go back and get the speaker stuff. Yeah. Don't get the speaker stuff first. Get the therapy stuff first. Then once you have that foundation, then you go get the speaker stuff. And then, then it'll make sense. The technique or how to hold a mic and how to project your voice. All that comes later. It's levels to it. Levels to it. Level up, y'all. Things might change, man. Things might change. And we need them to change in the prisons and in our minds and in our lives, but it takes effort. We have to work our way from our condition to our consciousness and then to our dream. That's right. And uh, you are a living sample of that. If you can go from the prison yard to the Harvard yard. Yes, sir. Then... um. The possibility is there for each and every one of us. And I I just want to say the last thing you was talking about, you was talking about how there are a lot of administrators that want to institute change. They want to see change. That is definitely true. Because I, like I was explaining to you earlier, I just finished speaking at uh, Fulton County Jail. And man, they was calling me once a week. Oh, oh, are we still on? Uh, uh, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Too early, cause we could do it in the afternoon, you know. And they want people to come in there. We we gotta be there for our brothers and sisters because let me tell you something, man. You wanna live in a safe neighborhood, and you wanna see that your environment is crime free. 
then you better start with the individuals that are coming out of jail and those that are going to jail and stopping individuals from going to jail. So it's a process. It's a level to it. Andre, I want to thank you for coming by. And um, this is it for us right here on Necessary Blackness Podcast. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Peace. I'm talking about all set. I'm talking about waking up the God inside of you. I'm talking about when our people are put in situations of adversity, that's when we shine the best. Under pressure, that's when we turn into black diamonds. I was made for this. I'm not a product of the cages that they raised us in. No, no. Bred to be a king, I'm not a slave to this. I was made for 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 this. I'm not a product of the cages that they raised us in. No, no. Bred to be a king, I'm not a slave to this. They don't know fact from fiction.